Well, let's give thanks to the Lord, and then we'll get into our passage. Father, thank you for this time together. What a joy to gather with the saints. What a joy to hear voices behind me singing, singing praises to God. Lord, you, you are our thanksgiving. Our joy is in you, Lord. And we thank you that we are free to do that. We're grateful for a chance to gather this week with family and friends and remember just the bountiful harvest that you've given us in our Christian life. We're free from our sins. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a, a constant reminder that is. What a motivation that is for us to live for you. What a cause for thanksgiving and gratefulness. And Lord, you, have, you are preparing a place for us. And you're going to come and get us, Lord, someday. And by death or by rapture, you will take us to be with you, and we will spend eternity. And we long for those days, Lord. But Father, why we have our feet on this earth, may our, our hearts and our tongues be full of thanksgiving and gratefulness. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries around the world. I was just looking over a list of them this morning. Thank you for the ability to partner with them to help fund them and pray with them and meet needs together. Lord, we're so grateful for that gospel going out to countries that we can't personally be in. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can walk with those men and women. Lord, please bless them, give them favor. Just pray for strength during even more difficult times in those difficult countries, Lord. So please protect them and give them inroads with people's lives, Lord. Father, we think of those who can't be here today. Many are at home or, or maybe even in the hospital watching online right now, Lord. I pray you would help them know that we love them, Lord. But more importantly, may they know that you love them. We ask you to care for them, Lord. And Lord, whatever their state in life is, Lord, may they finish well and run well. Father, I particularly want to pray for Bill Cochran this morning, Lord. There's many we can pray for, but Lord, we ask that you would touch his body, Lord. I pray for his recovery, Lord. Pray for his dear wife, Pam, Lord. Father, now as we turn to your word, would you give us strength to know it, to understand it, to believe it, Lord, and to live it. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2007, they came up with the term Friendsgiving. Have you heard that term yet, Friendsgiving? I think Gina and I had our boys in high school, and they came to us, Mom, Dad, we want to do a Friendsgiving celebration. We are like many parents, like, well, what's that? And, and uh, so it was, you know, take over the house and cook a lot of food and have their friends over. And, and they had a great time. And I've been watching that develop, particularly not so much outside the church, but inside the church, really admiring some of you. Many of you even this year got together and I saw posts on social media of people in our church getting together before even the holiday came and just having a great time together, enjoying friendship and family and food and all those things together. And I think it's such a beautiful thing to have friends. Friendship's really important to God. Do you know that? Friendship's extremely important to God. And he writes much about it and gives us much to understand. You know, the Bible said that God, God himself said it's not good for man to be alone. And I know we always attach that, but rightly so, to marriage. Um, Adam was in the garden. He, he was the highest of all the creations. He had studied and named the animals. And there was nothing suitable for him. So God says it's not good for you to be alone. And he made him a mate. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? However... When we think about application to that, it is not good for man to be alone. God wants us to have friends and relationships. And God himself, now listen to this, says he's our friend. That's quite a statement, isn't it? God, the eternal God, the creator of all things and all, everything that we have, all that exists, <clears throat> is our friend. That's staggering. I think often, sometimes we don't, see the significance of that. We maybe worship God from a distance sometimes because we've not lived for him and we're embarrassed to maybe our life and we don't see that close-knit relationship God desires to have with us. But God desires for us to be friends. I think this is a great point of thanksgiving. We finished the book of Mark here just a few weeks ago and I've been just doing a short little series on thanksgiving. I started in Psalms 138 and last week we looked at the 
the thankfulness for the word of God and for those who teach it and for those who receive it and those who live it. What a fun message that was to think through that. But today I want to be thankful for friends. I want to be thankful for you. I want to be thankful for Christ, that he's my friend. And I want to encourage you today to have a stronger relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. When I think about the titles in the scriptures given to you and I as believers, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's many titles given to us in the scriptures. You know there's a lot of titles about God, but there's a lot of titles for you. Think about some of these. I jotted them down just for us to think about. We're called believers. We're called believers. Now that's, that's a unique term. That's someone who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're a believer. You're not a believer in the MBA or anything else. You're a believer in Christ. That's what you are. It goes on to say that we're beloved of God. That's one of my favorite terms given to genuine Christians. Beloved of God. The Greek has an idea of setting God set his love upon us. He beloved us. That, that, that captures me. That, that enraptures me in a way that think that Almighty God could love me and set his affection upon me. One not deserving of that. There's so many other terms. The called, the chosen, right? The called, the kaleo is the Greek word. It's a unique word that God chose us, called us out of all of the world and set his love on us. We're called children of God, children of promise, children of light. We are his family members. We're his children. Here's a unique one that we don't always talk about. Sons of the resurrection. Isn't that interesting? The Bible refers to us as sons of the resurrection. If Christ was raised, we will be raised. Such a great truth to hold on to. He will not even forget about our earthly bodies. He will raise us bodily to be with him. Once we pass from this life to be absent from the this life is to be present with the Lord, right? So we move into his presence, but he will resurrect us. So we're sons of the resurrection because we're indefinitely tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible calls us Christians. That means one who follows Christ. Christians are Christ followers. It's a unique term for us. We're called disciples. We're called the elect, the chosen, the godly, Heirs of God, heirs of promise, heirs of salvation. We're even called the righteous. That's quite a term, isn't it? The righteous. God declared us righteous at salvation, imputation of his son's righteousness onto us. We gained his righteousness. Christ gained our sin, died for them, but we gained his righteousness. And so the church, people who are believers are called the righteous. We're called lights in this world, living stones, members of the body of Christ, people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy ethnos of people. I don't know what our nation's doing, but I know what the church is doing. We're following the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the holy ethnos. We're his people, right? He goes on to say that we are the people for God's own possession. All of that comes out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We're called the salt of the earth. Do you taste like Christ? Salt was for flavoring, right? We're called the salt of the earth. This is what we are. We're called slaves of Christ, bondservants of him, slaves of righteousness. Listen to this, vessels of honor. You're a vessel of honor. You're a vessel of mercy. And then he uses this word, the saints. How many times have you dealt with people in other religions that struggle with the term saint? They think it's someone that's dead and done something miraculous. No, no. It was dead, me, who was made alive by the miraculous work of God, and I'm a saint. And so are you. The Bible refers to you as saint. These are, comes from the Greek word hagias, meaning holy one, right? So we're holy ones of God. I could go on and on. There are certainly more terms for that, but probably one of the most enduring terms when you study this and see how God looks at us is this word friend. God calls us friend. The old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. I think the word friend is troubling for some people. If you're a legalist, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because if you're a legalist, you are trying to measure yourself in some way next to everybody else or even next to God. And you're trying to somehow produce your own righteousness and you're overwhelmed and always working on something to try to justify who you are. And so so friend's really difficult for a legalist because that strips all that away. 
Well, it's also difficult for a complacent Christian. Well, just flippant Christian. Well, I believe Jesus died for me. Yeah, I'm a sinner, I believe. But no change comes in your life. There's really no friendship with Jesus in that way either. Friend is reserved for a true Christian. It's for one who says, I have nothing to offer you, Lord Jesus. It is him or her that he becomes a friend. Well, look at our text this morning. I want to give you five quick thoughts as we work through this. And then Pastor Jason is going to lead us in the table today as we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to give you five thoughts today in this beautiful text that Pastor Brian read for us. The Bible reminds us here that Jesus has friends. Look at this first thought. Friends of Jesus are known by by their Christ-like love. Friends of Jesus are known by their Christ-like love. Look at verses 12 and 13, John chapter 15, um, as we read earlier. This is my commandment. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say this is God's commandment. This is my commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his, and there's our term, friends. Lay down his life for his friends. Well, here Jesus is repeating a command that he had given to them just hours before this in the upper room. John chapter 13, verse 34. If you look at John 13 real quickly, you remember that he's taking his disciples into this upper room that he had had prepared. This is just the night of his death, right? Hours after this, he's going to be betrayed by Judas and the temple police, and they're going to arrest him and take him away. But he has this meal. Remember, we spent quite a bit of time as we were working through Mark on this, as he unveils the new covenant, his covenant, that he would fulfill for us. But here in chapter 13, he washes the feet of his disciples. He humbles himself. He takes out his outer garment and puts an apron of a sense around him and kneels down before his own disciples and washes their feet. Then he begins to tell them that he's going to be betrayed that night. He begins to show them that there's one even amongst them that will betray him and turn against him. One that is not his friend. Then as he moves further in his instruction, which he gave tremendous amount of instruction that night before his death, he gets to verse 34, and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you should love one another also. Well, you say, well, what makes this a new commandment? It's made new because it's based upon Jesus' love himself. It's new because of the sacrificial love that Jesus Christ was going to lay down. It's everything the Old Testament was pointing towards makes this new. Oh, the old one was sacrifice and offerings and tithes and and continual day after day, year after year, over and over. And that became what? Old. Jesus says, I have a new commandment. It's going to be based on my sacrificial love. And guess what? My spirit, the spirit of God, is going to give it to you. And he promises that. If you look back at verse 10 in our text, John chapter 15, verse 10 and 11, he says, If you keep my commandments, now notice this, you will abide in my love. Stop right there. That word abide is a great word. It's a minnow in the Greek. It means to remain, to permanently stay. It's one of the things we commit to each other when we say our vows. I will remain with you through good times and difficult times. But here the Bible tells us that if we truly believe, we will keep commandments and God will remain with us. It's a promise of his everlasting love. There isn't this coming and going of the Spirit of God. He is going to eternally reside with us. And notice he says, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Just like the father has has sent me and I obeyed all that he sent me to do. And he's with me and remains with me. And him and I are one. He said this over and over, didn't he? Talk about the equality between the father and the son. He says, so you and I will have. And then look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be with you. And that your joy may be full that your joy may be full. Love and joy 
and friendship go together. Friend, good, true friendship is marked by love for one another and a joy to be together. That's, now, it doesn't mean there's not difficulties and times we work things out. We're headed for 33 years of marriage. We've had a few of those challenging times, haven't we, sweetie? But it's marked, our marriage is marked by love and joy. There's nobody on this earth I'd rather be with than her. There's a mark there of, of joy and love. And Jesus says, look, just as the Father has abided in me, so I will abide on you. That's the kind of love you will experience when you believe me, when you obey me, when you follow me. And you will have joy and it will be made complete in you. This is the gift of God. See, the point is that you must abide in Jesus daily in an order and experience such love. Now, we're not talking loss of salvation here, but we're starting to understand why I don't love sometimes. You ever wonder why you're cranky and mean? A little hot in here. I'm cranky and mean when I don't love Christ. (laughs) Because guess what? I love me. And then I don't abide in him. I don't, I don't, he's abiding in me, but I want to drift, right? And so God says, look, abide in me and you'll experience great love and experience great joy. Show me two people who love Christ. I'll show you people who will never divorce. They may have hard times. <laughs> they may go through difficult things, but those two people will never give up. They'll stay fighting and stay on there because they love the Lord and the Lord's love keeps them together, even then, during the most difficult Stretchous times. See, we wander from this abiding love and it affects our attitudes with one another. It even affects our view of God. But when we abide in the love of Jesus, we can have great capacity to love. You want to be a great lover? Love Christ. You want to be the best husband, wife, best friend to your buddy or your girlfriend or whatever it may be, love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where love abides. That's where love can be expounded on and and, and the beauty of love can come out. It's found in loving Christ. This understanding and ability to love is, is given in the fullness of salvation. You receive this at salvation. Listen to what Paul says, Romans chapter five, verse five. He says, the love of God, now listen closely, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You say, well, I, I, you know, I've had so many people say this, and I understand this a bit. Well, my dad never loved me. I didn't have parents, and, and that might be well true in here. You, you may have had a difficult upbringing, and I understand a bit of that. Salvation fixes that. Because no matter what has happened to you on this earth, the Bible says when you come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he pours his love into you. And so when people tell me, oh, I just don't have the capability of loving like that way, Pastor, I go, then you're not saved. Because this Bible, our Bible right here, Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He pours it out. We have great capability of loving. It's just we're stubborn, right? And we don't want to repent of sin. And we don't want to, what, lay our lives down for someone else as Christ laid his life down for us. See, that's the difference. And that's how we learn to love. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And many theologians believe that all the other characteristics of the Spirit flow from that love. Because that love is given to us from God. So peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control all flow from a love that God has poured out within us. This gift is from God to give you the ability to love. There should be no greater people who love than the church. I mean, think about it. We, of all people, should be the most loving people around We have had love poured out on us. Remember the title that we've been given, Beloved, Brethren? God set his love on us. And and I think one of the things that helps you understand whether you're in the faith or not is that you can't love anybody else. How do you know you were ever loved by God? See, he loved us so that we are able to love one another. This is how they'll know that you are what? My disciples. So God loves us. I love the Thessalonican church. 
I'd like to meet those people someday. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 says this, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Isn't that interesting? Paul writes to a church like Thessalonica and says, when it comes to love, you've been taught by God. I don't need to hit that subject. That's a lot different than the Corinth church. (laughs) These people can't even get in line. They can't wait for a meal to wait for people who are working. And I mean, it's amazing. They're, they're Corinth church, not all of them, but there was a great group of people within there who were extremely selfish and the church had all kinds of problems because they didn't know how to love. But not Thessalonica. Paul says, you don't need anybody to write to you on this subject. What a great church. Wouldn't that be cool if that's how God marked our church? That Riverbend was a church where you came, you were loved. You were loved. That's what we're after. That's what the elders are after. We think that's why we teach the gospel. The gospel is all about Christ laying down his life for us, and then we lay down our lives for others. That's where we should be going, right? That should be the direction of the church. It's the greatest preaching of the gospel of how we treat one another. See, God taught you how to love by demonstrating what true love is. And listen, every time you think about, read about, hear it preached, Anytime you deal with the gospel, you're dealing with the greatest statement of love ever. Jesus died for me. It's the greatest statement ever. I deserve the the wages of sin. I deserve the depth of hell. And Jesus died for me. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is true love. It's a powerful love, isn't it? And, and, and when you come for marital, count, marital counseling, guess what we work really hard on? The gospel. <laughs> and it gets us into all the other issues of why you're having struggles, but it's the gospel that rescues love for each other and rescues your marriage because it's just drenched in love, isn't it? Notice he says that we are to love one another, meaning to love fellow believers. It's the mark of the redeemed. Show me a church that loves one another and most likely they're getting preaching from the word of God. It's the mark of the redeemed. Love, as mentioned before, it is the defining truth of the scriptures. The Bible teaches it. And of course, John here is inspired by the spirit of God, right? He's writing on the life of Christ. The spirit's moving him along as he writes this. But as we look down later into John's life, guess what is a main subject in his epistle? We'll turn to 1 John and let me show you a few verses real quickly. 1 John chapter 2. And I just want you to put a mark in your Bible there, maybe by these verses, and go back and think about them as we look at them. 1 John chapter 2. We'll start. There's several, there's quite a few. I just picked out a few choice ones. John chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Let's look at that. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. So he's going to make a a comparison, right? He's going to talk about hate and darkness and love and light, right? He's going to do that all the way down through this. He does this very well. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So love creates light, right? What a loving thing God gave us, Jesus Christ the, the living word and gave us the written word so we don't stumble. I think so many people stumble because they don't read their Bibles. So you don't have any light. You're just walking around in darkness, right? The word of God sheds light there, right? But notice what he goes on to say, verse 11. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness. You, you, see, people might come up and say, I don't know if I'm saved. Well, who, do you love your brother? Do you hate people? You got a whole list of people you hate? might tell you you're not saved because he says, look, if you hate your brother, you're not in the light. It's pretty simple exegesis, isn't it? You walk around in darkness and does not know whether, where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. Do you love or do you hate? Hatred, darkness, light, love. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Turn over a page. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Now, you should have this verse marked in your Bible. This is a verse that you should say, wait a minute, he's going to tell me who the saved are and who the unsaved aren't, right? In fact, the Bible says it's obvious. 
Look what it says. Verse, chapter 3, verse 10. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he throws in this little phrase, because look, we all struggle with practice, but this, this has an idea that we do not, at least consistently, by the grace of God, live lives that honor the Lord. If your life is consistently dishonoring the Lord, you should not think you're saved. But then he throws this little ditty in at the end. Nor the one who does not love his brother. You know how many church splits have happened because of anger between members and churches? And there are a lot, usually silent church splits. People leave the church because somebody so goes there. And I can't forgive them or can't do this or that. And there's this great bitterness that wells up. And God, the Bible is very clear, God hates disunity. But often it's beyond that. It's a mark of un, unregenerate people, Right? He says, look, this is the difference between the children of God and the children of devil. If you practice unrighteousness all the time, you're children of the devil. If you don't love your brother, you're children of the devil. You're a child of the devil. Look at verse 15 and 16. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You don't, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Unrepentive, one who takes the life of another we know love by this. Now look at here comes the gospel. John heard this from Jesus himself. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. Oh, that's the gospel, but it's not done, is it? Look at the rest of the verse. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. See, the gospel goes so far beyond, hey, Jesus died for me. I'm going to go live any way I want. I'm free now. got fire insurance. Can't take me down to hell. Ooh, that's the way you're thinking you better get a little check on that spiritual pulse and see if there's one there. See, the Bible says that there's a love that wells up in us, abides within us, that we desire to lay our lives down because Jesus laid his life down, not in order to gain salvation because of the result of salvation. How would you like to have a friend, a spouse, who would lay their life down for you at any moment? See, that's what God wants in his church. He wants gospel people who lay their life down for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, just a few more. There's so much more in John. Let me skip a few. Um, chapter 4, 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who is born of God, there's your salvation, and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is the standard of love. God is love. If you say you're a Christian, there is love, right? You love one another. Chapter 4, verse 20. Keep skipping down through here. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. <laughs> Look, don't get mad at me. That's in the Bible. You got any hatred towards somebody? Something unresolved that you have not taken care of. The Bible says this. Be, uh, Paul says in Romans that you should do everything on your part to take care of, to strive to have peace with all men. You can't make somebody love you or even forgive you, but you can do your part. But as Christians, we can't go around and hate people because we're liars. We're really not believers, the Bible says. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, and I'll close with this one on this point here because I think this is one of my favorite verses. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one, the Son of God, is born of God. He's a believer. And whoever loves the Father, um, and, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So here's the result of it. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he came to this world. He dressed himself in flesh. He lived a perfect life, was a substitute for me. I believe the Father sent him to rescue me from my sins. And because of that, I put my faith in him, and I love the Father, and I love you. See, that's what makes me love you. Not because you, you, you just in and of yourselves, and most of you are really lovely people, but I love you because the Lord loves you. Love what God loves. Hate what God hates. That's the mark of holiness. Love what God loves. 
hate what God hates. The Bible's really clear what God hates. He hates disunity. He hates murder and death of the unborn. And I mean, you just go on, right? The lists are clear in there. Um, he hates divorce. I mean, we know that. Love what God loves. And look, we're probably not the most lovely people in the world all the time. But the grace of God is so powerful that it can cause us to love one another. And people are attracted to that. Notice back in verse 12 and 13, it says, just as I have loved you. So he gives us a, a way to love. Men, your wife needs you to lay your life down for her. Men, let me say this again. Your wife needs you to lay your life down for her. You're supposed to be a picture of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what love is. Give it up. Instead of fighting for your turf and what's yours and battling, lay your life down for her. That's what God asked us to do. And, and Jesus says, I'm not asking you something that, to do that I didn't do. I laid my life down for you. And then he goes on to say, notice in verse 13, greater love has no one, no one than this, that one would lay down his life for a friend. Paul says, be an imitator of Christ because he laid down his life for you. Be an imitator. This is a selfless, gospel-driven love that is so sweet and it's such a worshipful offering to the Lord. You want to give to the Lord? Love people. Ask God to give you a spirit of love for somebody. I've had many couples in my office, I told them this, ask God to teach you to love her or love him. He, he is all about that. Why would he not give that to you? Bend your knee to him and ask God to give you a deep love for him or for her. That's what he desires. Follow his lead. And, and just a closing thought on this point. I love my friendships. I love the men that are in my life who I know would lay their life down for me and I would for them. And, and let me push you just a bit. Do you have those kind of relationships? I, I know we might have them in our marriage, but do we have them outside of it? Do we have them within this church? What would you do for the people of this church? Would you lay your life down for it? And I'm so thankful, and over the holidays, I, I'm grateful for my wife, and, and some of our children were home over the holidays, and, and yet we had friends in our home. I love. I love spending time with them. Come to church on Sunday morning, and here's all of you people who God set his love upon, and it, it just, there's a welling up of love for each other. See, that's what the gospel does for you. If you want to be a lover of somebody, learn the gospel. Lay down your life. You know, Augustine said, he said this, if we love in a sense in which Jesus uses the term, we will have no need for other rules. You catch that? We'll have no need for other rules. See, Legalists have to come up with all kinds of things to somehow present themselves before God. But not people who love God. What happens is you love God, you want to live a life pleasing to him. So love drives that, right? Love gives you desires that you would not have on your own. Love causes you to say no to self and yes to others. See, that's what love does. You don't have to go around thinking, well, the Bible says this, and better not do that, boy. You, know, you have this list and you're just a miserable person to live with. See, Christianity is about love. Love of Christ and what he accomplished for us and loving him and living a life that is an act of love for him. It's our love gift offering to the Lord our own lives. And so Augustine said, man, we wouldn't have any list if we just learned to love this way. See, there's no greater love because nothing else measures up to it. Second thought. Friends of Jesus are known by their love-driven obedience. Look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Well, when you read this verse, you can't forget the context that's here, right? We just don't want to jump in and verse pluck something out. Judas is gone. Isn't that interesting? Here, he's with his disciples. They're either still in the upper room or they're making their way across to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're having this conversation about friendship and love. And there's somebody missing from it. 
He said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. The context is clear. There is one who is no longer with him. There is one who is not truly a friend. In fact, he's just the opposite, right? He's an enemy. He sold him out. He was a traitor. He was a betrayer. And isn't it interesting, this context, that you see that? And it makes, making it clear that not all people who, who think they're friends of the Godhead are actually friends of God. There's several examples, Judas being one of them, right? Acts chapter 1, 15 through 25, somewhere in there, really gives a description of the issues with Judas and how his death, that gruesome death of his and so forth. But in the middle of that, Peter says this, he says, we counted him as one among us, and yet he went out from us. He was never part of us. You get to men like Cain, is it hard to study Genesis chapter 4? And you get an understanding pretty quickly that Cain knew who God was. And it wasn't an unfamiliar time for them to spend a little time together. God had been with his little new family that he had created. And, and God comes to Cain after he's killed his brother, right? God, kindly, trying to draw repentance out of Cain, says, where's your brother? Of course, smart out of Cain, rebellious, not having the love of God in him, says, Who, what am I, my brother's keeper? Of course, God says his blood cries out. I know exactly where he is. One of the saddest verses in all of scriptures, chapter 4, Genesis 4, 16, and I know it's a narrative and it's probably speaking physically of him leaving, but I've always thought this way. It says, Cain walks out from the presence of God. See, not everybody who says God's my friend is really a friend. And that's why Jesus says, if you keep my commandments. He says, that's not from him, it's for you. <laughs> it's, it's to help you understand that God has radically changed your life. And your master is not sin. Your master is not the devil any longer. Your master, you're really in a, in a very spiritual sense, your lover is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you desire to please that one who has saved you. Now, of course, Judas was not a surprise to Jesus. And those who may be listening to this or, or maybe someone you know who thinks they're a Christian or not, it's not a surprise. Jesus said in John chapter 6 that he knew from the beginning who was going to deceive him, who would betray him. He went out. John says he went out from us because he was never part of us. And so Judas forsook the friendship of Christ in a sense and just driven by disappointment and greed, he was not a lover of others. You could see that. God had not changed his life. And so there's this lack of obedience. There's a lack of abiding love. And he goes out and portrays Jesus for the cost of a slave. But notice verse 5. Look at John chapter 15, verse 5. Just walking through this context here. It says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. I think the modern church gets this wrong. They tell God that actually he's the branch, you need us. <laughs> I mean, do you listen to some of this poor teaching that's coming out of the so-called church today? It makes you, makes the Christian, the one who needs to be saved, the center of God's universe in some ways. I love this verse. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. Listen to this, apart from me you can do nothing. If you want to be one who loves, abide in Christ. Apart from abiding in Christ, you will disappoint people in your life. You will hurt people that you think you love. Abiding in Christ is how we love. He is the great lover of our soul. And so we graft into him. God has grafted us into the main branch. There we find everything we need in this life to love properly is found in Jesus Christ. Remember, he's the shepherd. We are the sheep. We hear his voice and follow him. He lays down his life. We lay down our lives. I love verse 14 back in our text because it teaches us this apostolic call. Look, I'm calling you to love one another, to consistently walk with me. And friendship with Jesus creates a new consistency in your life. And we love the Lord for that third thought. 
friends of Jesus are set apart through the shared knowledge of the Father and the Son. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, it isn't hard to understand. Slaves, particularly in this ancient time, did not have the playbook of what the master was doing. The owner got up in the morning and he said, all right, slave, here's a list. Get it done. He didn't sit down and say, well, let's have a cup of tea together and I'm going to show you my whole plan. And, well, that wasn't the idea. Slaves were, they were bought, they would be sold. They, they really weren't human in a lot of ways, right? And so the master didn't share that. He shared that with the son, right? He shared that with family, with the plan of what we're going to do here. It wasn't shared with them. But, but here... The Bible calls the disciples friend. It's an exalted title. He says, no longer do I call you slave. And dropping down, but I call you friends. There's only other one place that we see this. And of course, that's Abraham, right? James chapter 2, verse 23 says, The scripture was fulfilled which said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous. And then it says this, And he was called the friend of God. See, Abraham believed that God was going to make him righteous. He could not do it on his own. He put faith that God would somehow make him righteous so he could be in the presence of God. And because Abraham believed that God had the capability of making him righteous, God called him a friend. Now put this into our context. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who makes us righteous. God calls us friend. Because we can be in his presence now. What kind of friend is never in your presence? I have this friend. Have you ever seen him? No. You talk to him ever? No. See, God has made us friends so you and I can be in his presence. At any moment, you can stop and talk to the Father in heaven. You can pour your heart out to him. See, this is the relationship we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, that Jesus is our great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, we hold this confession, right? But we don't have a a high priest that can't sympathize with us, but one who was tempted in all ways but without sin. And we can, listen to this, draw near to him with confidence. You can even go to Jesus and say, Jesus, my, my Savior, my friend, I've failed you today. I didn't lay my life down for you. Will you forgive me? I know it cost your death. Will you forgive me? And guess what your friend does? He forgives you. And he said, yeah, I died for that. See, this is who we're dealing with. We're dealing with the best friend you could ever have. Does this not make you thankful? Maybe some of you are struggling with loneliness today. You feel alone. Maybe some of you have been abandoned and someone has sinned against you. I, I, I don't know that I can fully understand what maybe all of, or all of some of you have gone through, but I know one who does. <laughs> the Bible says he suffered alone on the cross. All abandoned him. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. Guess who you can run to when you're lonely? Best friend in the world. He loves you. He loves you like a brother, the Bible says. But notice also in verse 15 that not only are his disciples called friend, but they also have the privilege to share in the knowledge of the Father and the Son. I think this is fascinating. He says, all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Isn't that the mark of a true friendship? That you can share with somebody in confidence with them? Don't you love an intimate relationship with a friend Spouse, even or just a friend, even guys with guys that, hey, can I pour my heart up to you where I'm hurting? And can you give me counsel back of, of how to do what's right here? Isn't that beautiful to have a relationship with somebody like that? Guess what Jesus says? All the things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. That's a friend. He gave us the Bible. <laughs> you want to know how to live this life and how to deal with hurt and difficulties and rejection. You know how to have real love and true friendship? He gave us the word of God. What a friend. What a friend that didn't just say, well, you know, that's a hard problem. Uh, See you later. He gives us his word. 
He places a spirit within us so we never feel lost and would give us understanding of the Bible. See, this is indeed a true intimate friendship and he proves that. Remember his disciples kept saying, why do you speak in parables? And you know what Jesus said? Because I don't want them to know. They're not my friends. They're going to betray me and put me on a cross. And he says, I speak to you because I'm giving you wisdom and understanding. To them, I'll leave them in the dark. Paul says it this way. He says, the natural man does not understand the things of God. He's spiritually appraised, right? He has no understanding. But God says, not you. Your eyes are blessed and you will see things that they won't see, Luke chapter 10. That's what the Lord does for us. Listen, true friends of Jesus have the privilege of the shared knowledge of the word of God. And here's a mark of a good friendship. Somewhere in that conversation, somewhere in that relationship, you will get to the word. You'll get to the word. And you'll spend time in the word together. Whether that's your husband and wife reading their Bibles in the morning or sometime or going to church together with Bibles on their laps or friends sitting down over a cup of coffee, hurting together, weeping together, rejoicing together, but they bring the word to the scenario. Christ says, all that the Father's given me, I've given you. You want to be a really good friend? You want friendships? Bring the word. Oh, it's going to run a few people off. When they know your view of marriage and life in the womb, and I mean, you're going to, boy, you're going to have a target on your head. But you want really good Christian loving friends? Bring the word. Bring the word. And you'll find great friendships. Four, Friends of Jesus are fruit-bearing, chosen believers. Friends of Jesus are fruit-bearing, chosen believers. Look at 16 and 17. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I pointed at you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. In the ancient days, um, spiritual leaders had followings. And the way you followed a rabbi in that day is you had to go ask him. You would go, can I be your follower? It's kind of like social media getting likes, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He does just the opposite, right? You know, you go up and in that day, you would go choose this rabbi who you thought you really connected with. And can I be your friend? No, the Lord just does the opposite. Notice the verse. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And listen, that's that's particularly for our eternal relationship. God chose us. God did not sit back in the... Think about this beautiful, sovereign God of ours who sat back and folded his arms and said, well, I'm I'm helpless till that person asks for me. I don't know what kind of God the church teaches on some days. The God that spoke a creation into the world, who holds all things in his hands, who controls end times to down to the second. But yet he can't save man. He's, he's, he's totally hamstrung while he waits on man. That's not how God acts. And that's not loving. God seeks you out. God chooses you and draws you to him. And do we understand all that? No, you'll probably go to your grave until you see him face to face, until you ever completely understand that. And that might take eternity to get our minds around that. But we accept it because how beautiful and how loving that is. No one chose Gina for me. I saw her, got out of a, I saw her get out of a car from one of my buddies one day, and I go, who is that? And I did everything in my power for six months to get her. (laughs) God sees us, draws us to himself in this plan that he set down from eternity. See, that's love. That's love. That's dedication to us. And the knowledge that Jesus chose them, these disciples, and chooses us, that's extended to all believers And that's the gift of salvation, apart from anything merited, anything worked, anything willed, or anything else. It eliminates the pretense of some spiritual pride that you would have. And that's how you can love better, because you remove that spiritual pride that you did something, or you were born some way, or you were in some kind of line to gain something. You have nothing to offer him. And you're like the old hymn writer that says, you know, I come empty-handed, nothing in my hand. I have nothing. Well, you saved me. And so God opens our hearts 
1 Corinthians 1.30 says, it's by his doing we are in Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 says, but we give thanks always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. That's love. That's love. Notice in verse 16, not only did he choose his, his disciples, notice he appoints them. The word, the Greek word means to be set apart here, to be ordained for special service is the idea here. God has ordained you for a special service. And you're going, oh, I don't know, what is mine? I'll tell you what. You make an effort to love the Lord Jesus Christ through knowing the word of God and he'll put you right where he wants you. God is not doing this nut and shell game with your life. That's crazy, right? That's what we start thinking. Oh, I don't know the will of God. He's not trying to hide it from you. What happens is we spend our lives chasing our own desires all day long, and we're very confused to who he is and what he's doing. Say, God, give me a love for your son and his word. Pray that over and over and practice it. And I promise God will direct you right to the center of his will. Well, certainly the center of his will is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? That's what we do. That's what lovers of Christ do. That's what good friends do. Don't you love to tell people about maybe someone who's in your life that you just really care for? Well, that's what we do with Jesus. See, that's a great commission. So don't think of the great commission, well, you know, we've got to have a missions month and talk about missions. Missions is about telling people of the greatest person in all the world your best friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we would just think about missions that way, how much more we would be passionate about them and engaged in them. And then notice verse 17, he just says, this is, this I command you, this is my divine decree for you, that you love one another. Why is he doing that? Because it's the best thing for us. Love one another. Well, before Jason comes and ministers. Um, communion to us in the Lord's table. I just want to challenge you in one last thought here. Number five, has the gospel transformed your friendships? I was reading, of course, in Romans 5 this week when I was working on this message. And there, verse, eight, verse 6 says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What a great gospel verse, isn't that? And then verse 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. It just shows our inability and our depravity and so forth and the Lord just saving us. But verse 7 intrigued me. Listen to verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. It's hard to find somebody who would lay their life down, right? Some of you have been in the military. You've seen maybe men lay their life down to protect you. So there are some, because the Bible says, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. Well, I think that's fascinating. Because I think the world has some worldly moral goodness to them in some ways. They'll, a soldier will lay, throw himself on a grenade, right? Someone's pushed, them, pushed somebody out of the way of a bus and died in their place. These things happen even to lost people. But... For what? See, we have such a greater reason to lay our lives down because Jesus laid down his life for us. So let me ask you a question. What kind of friend are you? Back that up. Let me ask you another question. Do you have friends? Too many people have walked in my office and said, my spouse has no friends. And it's wearing on their relationship. See, God puts friends in our life to sharpen each other. God puts friends in our life so we know that we have the gospel. See, a friendless person, a friendless, quote, Christian, is probably friendless because they don't handle the gospel. The gospel says, I love you. The gospel says, I am willing to lay down my life. I'm willing to talk about the difficult things. I'm willing to laugh with you and weep with you and rejoice with you. I'm willing to do life with you. See, that's a gospel friendship. Do you have friends? See, that's a good question, isn't it? And you say, well, Scott, I, I may not have them like I should. 
God, help me love your son. Help me love your word so I can be a good friend. That's what he's asking us to do. Proverbs gives us a little more help. He says in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times. What a description of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? What a description of our heavenly father, right? He never stops loving us when we're his children. No matter what you do, if you are truly saved, you're truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he does not love, he doesn't love, well, today's Tuesday and Scott's not doing it. God is a constant, perfect, loving God. And that's what we're supposed to be, right? We already read in, in Ephesians 5.1 where Paul said that we are to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid his life down, loved us and laid his life down for us. So if I want to be a friend who loves at all times, I must imitate the one who does this perfectly. And then the last phrase, and I've got to quit with this. It says that a brother is born for adversity. Have you ever suffered with somebody? We have some people suffering in our church. You know somebody who suffered. There's people who are in this building right now who have gone through cancer treatment and they're here now. And one of the things they'll tell you about is the people, the brothers and sisters in the Lord who came alongside them and wept with them and prayed with them and laughed and cried with them. You want to be a friend? Be willing to hurt with somebody. It's not fun sometimes. Sometimes you don't know what to say. Sometimes you're like Job's friends. You just sit there for seven days around the fire and don't speak till they do. I've been in situations too many times and there's just nothing to say. You just sit there and you weep with them. But we have a message, brothers and sisters. We have the love of God. That's Friendship. And you may not even say a word and they'll know you love them because you're sitting with them. And then God will give you an opportunity to love on them and show them the gospel. Father, thank you for friends. Thank you for our friend in Jesus Christ. There's no one like him. <laughs> He's a perfect friend. In fact, we would have nothing without him. He showed us how to obey you. He showed us how to sacrifice. He showed us how to love. We can go to him at any time, Lord, no matter what the situation may be. We're not afraid of him. We can walk into his presence and ask. And he takes us even into your presence, Father, because you are inseparable. What a friend we have in Jesus. So Lord, I pray that today you would cause us to be thankful people for our friend in Christ. And Lord, I also pray that you would cause that to help us to be better friends. That this church would be known as a loving church. They love one another. They love new people. They love the hurting and the happy. We love people because you loved us. Help us in that, Lord. We need your strength in that. And Father, for those who are hurting in here right now, lonely, or their marriages are struggling, or whatever it may be, cause them, cause me, cause us to love your Son, Lord, and love his word. May we start today. Lord, give us an infatuation that leads to deep love with you. May we be overwhelmed even now that you would die for us in such a death but that would lead us to want to know you. We'd want to read the book of John before the week was out so we would know you. Lord, thank you. Bless Jason as he leads us in communion this morning in the ultimate demonstration of love as we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.